schools are considering reopening and some are moving full steam ahead, testing and contact tracing are lacking all over the United States, and some promising vaccine trials give us a glimmer of hope. Let's talk all about the latest COVID-19 news right here on this special bonus episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Hello and welcome to The Nurse Keith Show. I'm privileged to use this platform to educate and inform you, The Nurse Keith Nation, so that you can take any information you find useful and share it with others. I'm committed to continuing publishing these episodes related solely to the COVID-19 pandemic. These episodes are always free of corporate sponsorship. This is solely about education and information as a public service. So please share far and wide if you feel moved to do so. The show notes for this episode will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word COVID-19-14. All information in these episodes about COVID-19 reference the most up-to-date information I can access. Please note the situation is changing by the moment and anything I share here may have altered or expanded or been retracted by the time this goes to press. And please also note that nothing shared in the course of any Nurse Keith coaching COVID-19 episode is intended for diagnosis or treatment. So please consult your healthcare provider, the CDC, the WHO, your local health department or any other evidence-based source that you trust. And if you hear something or read something I've shared that appears to be erroneous, please email me at keith at nursekeith.com with a correction, and I will consider posting that information to correct course and apologize for my error. So we are now in, let me see, the first week of August 2020. I'm recording this on August 5th. One of the major conversations happening around the United States and the world, but let's focus on the United States, is about schools reopening. That's public schools, private schools, colleges, and universities. Many, many teachers are scared. Many parents and children are frightened. And there's a lot of uncertainty filtering around and many decisions are being made or looking at being made that are making many people nervous. Now, we talk about teacher's safety. We talk about students' safety. I don't really hear a lot of conversation about administrators, janitors, and environmental services people, those who prepare and serve food in schools, bus drivers, aids for children with developmental disabilities. It's a lot more than teachers, actually. There are multiple people involved in the education of children, from transportation to food and nutrition. A lot of parents don't know what to do if they're being given a choice, and some parents don't know what to do if they're not being given a choice. Kids are obviously lacking in socialization. We know that for their brain development, that is very important at every age. And there are rites of passage and enjoyable things that generally happen at school that we don't even think we can allow to happen right now. So what can school even be like in this particular circumstance? Now, in Israel, I was reading an article in the New York Times how they opened schools too fast and the plan backfired, and there were widespread infections that 
reverberated out into the community. And I'll have a link to that article in the show notes. It's from August 4th, 2020. Here's a quote from that article. Confident it had beaten the coronavirus and desperate to reboot a devastated economy, the Israeli government invited the entire student body back in late May. Within days, infections were reported at a Jerusalem high school, which quickly mushroomed into the largest outbreak in a single school in Israel, possibly in the world. The virus rippled out to the students' homes and then to other schools and neighborhoods, ultimately infecting hundreds of students, teachers, and relatives. Other outbreaks forced hundreds of schools to close, and across the country, tens of thousands of students and teachers were quarantined, unquote. So that is a cautionary tale for us here in the United States. We have already seen spread of coronavirus within colleges and universities that aren't even in session yet because kids and students have been there for various, I guess, athletic practices and things like that. And we've seen hundreds of positive tests as well as in fraternities, which I guess have been open throughout the summer. We've seen large parties without social distancing and masks. You get the picture. Now, Chicago's public school district, which is the third largest in the country, has decided as of this week to go 100% online. There have been recently as many as 250 new cases per day in Chicago as of late. So that is quite a bit of spread in the community. So they're letting science guide them. They're not letting their emotions get in the way. Now, New York City the largest school district in the country is opening apparently relatively fully about one month from now in early September, I guess after Labor Day, with students attending in-person classes from one to three days per week. I don't know where the one to three comes from. It might be based on the school or based on testing. I'm not quite sure. But some teachers in the New York City area are threatening to stage a sick out if in-person classes are instituted and their union may actually sue the city to stop Bill de Blasio's plan from moving forward. Now, in terms of colleges, of course, that is a whole other issue. I have some young friends who are actually going off to college for in-person instruction or hybrid instruction starting at the end of August and beginning of September, and some who are planning to go in January, having deferred for the fall, hoping that the worst of the flu season will have passed and they can possibly safely go back to school in January. But all bets are off in terms of what will actually happen. In terms of colleges, who is going to be tested and how quickly are they going to get results? Because getting results quickly is how we quarantine people before they unwittingly spread the virus because they don't yet have their test results. Are colleges and universities going to universally mandate mask wearing? Are they going to have universal testing? One expert I heard interviewed on a podcast was saying that they really need to test every student every two days. And you can imagine the logistics and the cost of doing so. What's going to happen to tailgating parties, keg parties, sneaking into your partner's dorm room? Colleges are trying to strategize how to do this, but there are such different regulations and guidance being enacted in 
all different states, all different school districts, all different universities and colleges that can reflect on partisanship, on politics, and also on the belief in science, or basically, like I said a few minutes ago, it might be guided more by emotion rather than by the science and the facts that should lead us in the most prudent direction. So speaking of testing at colleges and universities, and even in public and private schools, turnaround time on testing in the U.S. is definitely too slow, according to most experts. So Louisiana, Massachusetts, Maryland, Michigan, Ohio, and Virginia announced just recently they're banding together in the first multi-state testing compact. This is six large states. They're bulk purchasing three million rapid tests through cooperation with the Rockefeller Foundation and two rapid test manufacturers. Three million is a lot, but it's not enough for six states. So I'm curious how this compact and their purchasing power will actually bear fruit and if it will be a model that other states might want to group together and follow. Now, here in the United States, we're now testing about 750,000 people per day. And like so many other things, according to the experts, that is not enough. We should have been testing millions of people per day, some say 10 to 20 million per day, beginning several months ago, but you know how that has gone. Now, recently, the issue has arisen yet again of testing chemicals being in short supply because of increased testing and increased demand. So again, we are running short on the supplies to conduct tests. We are running short on the supplies to actually run the tests. And then people are not receiving their results quickly enough. If a person gets tested and let's say they wait nine days or perhaps several more days in certain locations to get the results, if they're positive, are those test results really that useful at that particular time? Because for those aforementioned 9, 10, 11, or more days, that individual has been possibly going to work, hanging out with friends and family, going to the store, and most likely spreading the virus somewhere. So that's, of course, an unwitting spread, but we can't necessarily, or can we, ask every single person who's tested to quarantine until the results come back. That would be in a perfect world. But then again, what would that do to the economy? What would that do to families? What would that do to multi-generational families who live in close quarters in, in small homes or small apartments with, let's say, seven or eight people living together or more? So you can see that this is complicated. We do not yet and probably never will have a coordinated federal response and federal mandates. It's been left up to the states so much. And studies are also showing that there are racial disparities in access to testing and turnaround time. Again, racial disparities and socioeconomic disparities continue to rear their ugly heads in the midst of the pandemic. And with contact tracing falling apart at the seams all around the country, some places even giving up on contact tracing, like in New York City, where the contact tracers actually say that it's uncoordinated and confusing and 
very ineffective. How are we going to contain a virus that continues to spread and kill people? And we are now, I believe, over 150,000 dead. Meanwhile, hurricane season has started, and I'm just wondering how people can safely take shelter if they're forced to evacuate and stay in large gymnasiums, churches, and other places like stadiums where they need to be housed en masse until the hurricane passes. That is another issue facing the country and facing the Caribbean, Central America, etc. So how are people going to be safe? Now, there is some positive news coming out, and I would like to round out this little diatribe with a little bit of positive news. Now, Novavax Incorporated released phase one data just a couple of days ago from only 131 volunteers. So don't get too excited, but this is promising. And it shows that after two doses of their coronavirus vaccine, the participants in the study developed neutralizing antibodies at levels four times higher on average than the antibodies developed by people who'd recovered from the coronavirus. So these neutralizing antibodies fight off the virus that causes COVID-19. So that is a very interesting turn of events. And of course, we cannot place all of our hope on the results of a phase one trial involving only 131 volunteers. But that does give us a glimmer of hope that vaccine efficacy and safety is being tested in many localities around the world and some positive results and encouraging results are coming out. This vaccine also induced a response from T cells, that's a type of immune cell, that was 16 randomly selected volunteers who were analyzed for T cell development, so that's a good thing. And the participants received one or two doses of the vaccine. They were giving various dosages, of course, because we have to find the correct safe and efficacious dose. Some participants received an adjuvant, which is a component that boosts the immune system. Those who received two doses with the adjuvant had the best immune response. Let's see, of the 106 study subjects who received the vaccine, because I'm assuming this is a double-blind placebo-controlled study, five developed severe side effects, including muscle pain, nausea, joint pain, and one study subject had a mild fever. Those symptoms lasted two days or less. 25 volunteers got placebo injections, and three of those had side effects. And animal data in monkeys showed that there was no sign of infection in their noses or lungs after being given the vaccine. And one monkey, which received a low dose of the vaccine, showed signs of infection in the lungs, but all signs of infection were gone two weeks later. Well, that is quite encouraging. And I, speaking of encouragement, encourage you to go to the New York Times vaccine tracker. I will have a link to it in the show notes. And 
if you've been listening, you know that I do rely on the New York Times for a lot of my news because I feel like they've been doing a great job and all their coronavirus coverage is free to everyone in the world. There's no paywall and that's at nytimes.com forward slash coronavirus. So anyway, according to their coronavirus tracker, there are 140, actually more than 140 vaccines not yet in human trials, so they're preclinical development. There are 18 in phase one, meaning they're testing safety and dosage. There are 12 in phase two, which are in expanded safety trials. There are six in phase three, meaning they're being given in large-scale efficacy tests to hundreds, if not I hope thousands of volunteers. And one has been approved apparently for emergency limited use, I believe within the military. And it's not clear whether that will be voluntary or mandatory within the military and how many will actually receive the vaccine. So in terms of preclinical testing, let's just talk about what that means in a vaccine trial. So this is where the vaccine is given to animals, mice, monkeys, etc., and they just watch to see if there's any immune response at all. In a phase one safety trial, the scientists give the vaccine to a fairly small number of people, and in that phase one safety trial, they're testing for safety and dosage, finding the right dosage, and they're also watching for immune response in human subjects. In phase two, this is an expanded trial. They give the vaccine to hundreds of people split into groups, like perhaps the elderly, the disabled, children, and they want to see if the vaccine acts differently in the bodies of those different groups. Then they're also watching safety and efficacy and immune response in those hundreds of participants. Now in phase three, I remember just a few minutes ago, I questioned, I said, I hope thousands of people. Indeed, in phase three efficacy trials, vaccines are administered to thousands of people. They wait to see how many get infected compared with volunteers who receive a placebo. They also are checking if it's protective against the coronavirus, and of course, watching for side effects and watching for immune response. They need to have a vaccine that protects at least 50% of the people vaccinated in order for it to be seen as effective, 50% being protected. Now, approval goes through regulators, the FDA, and the trial results are gone over, I'm sure, I hope, with a fine-tooth comb. However, emergency use can be authorized, like I said, and it has been authorized here in the U.S., I believe, for military personnel only, and we don't know, or I don't know, the details of that. Now, also in the New York Times, under the vaccine tracker, they talk about combined phases. This is another way to accelerate development of new vaccines, and they combine that where some coronavirus vaccines, quote, are now in phase one slash two trials, for example, in which they're tested for the first time on hundreds of people rather than just a small group. And that could speed development because they're getting more data from more participants, more subjects in a shorter period of time. Now, in China, there's a company called CanSino 
Biologics. They've developed a vaccine based on an adenovirus that they say is called AD5. That's capital A, lowercase d5, in partnership with the Institute of Biology at the country's Academy of Military Medical Sciences. And they published some results back in May that seemed promising from a phase one trial. In July, they reported that their phase two trials showed very strong immune response. And they say this is very unprecedented. The Chinese military approved the vaccine on June 25th for a year as a specially needed drug. So we will have to see what happens. And actually, Here's a correction from just a few minutes ago. I just noticed this, and I'm just going to leave this in and not edit it out, that when I said that the one approval has been for U.S. military personnel, that is not correct. That one approval is the Chinese approval for mandatory or optional use in Chinese military personnel. So correction, not American military personnel. Chinese military personnel. Sorry. We all make mistakes, including Nurse Keith, of course, and I'm the first to admit it. So just wanted to add that correction here towards the end of the episode. So my friends, we are in, of course, unprecedented times, and we don't know how this is all going to turn out. My concerns remain with schools, colleges, and universities reopening, however they happen to do that. I again want to call attention to it's not just students and teachers, but administrators, other staff of schools, including bus drivers. We have to think about the bus drivers as well. We also need to think about students bringing home the virus to their loved ones, perhaps grandparents, parents with disabilities or underlying medical conditions, etc. And we do know through recent studies that children over the age of 10 through 19 do carry the same, if not more, virus in their bodies than adults. It's the children under 10 who apparently don't seem to spread the virus quite as readily as their older peers. I am quite concerned about the school issue about the daycare issue, and also about all of the people out there who, at this very moment, as I record, are no longer receiving their $600 a week extra unemployment benefits from the federal government. And I'm hoping by the time this podcast episode goes to press and is published, that Congress and the president will have come to their senses, pulled together and continue that $600 a week unemployment from the feds on top of state unemployment because people need it. And the studies show economists all agree pretty much that when people receive unemployment checks, it might keep some people from going back to work because maybe they're earning more than they were at work, but that's a small minority. And that money gets spent. And if we want to restart the economy and get money circulating and goods circulating again and business remaining open and viable, then we need people to spend money. So we need to, at this point, give them money to spend to keep those funds circulating throughout the economy. I am not an economist, but I do understand those basics of economics that I've been learning throughout the pandemic. And that, to me, seems like a very, very prudent idea to support 
our citizens in having enough money to feed their families and support the economy at the same time. I also believe that Americans should not be billed for thousands of dollars for coronavirus testing, which is happening to some individuals. I believe that should be free and covered by the government, and there should be no barriers to testing, but we know those barriers exist. Contact tracing is still lacking, and we have a long, long, long way to go, especially with the flu season rearing its head, coming in late September and early October. So buckle your seatbelts for the coming fall and winter. Stay safe. Take care of yourself. Be prudent in your actions. Be prudent in deciding what you do and do not do, who you see, where you go, and let's get through this together. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this special COVID-19 bonus episode of the Nurse Keith Show. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com forward slash COVID-19-14 for those links to the New York Times and CNN articles and the vaccine tracker that I referenced in the episode. I hope you feel informed and empowered, and I encourage you to take inspired action every day to educate, inform, and calm your friends, family, loved ones, colleagues, and members of your community. The Nurse Keith Show is a member of Ars Longa Media, a collaborative network of podcasts and media entities whose aim is to add a humanistic touch to professional education, educate the public from a scientifically informed perspective, and improve lives by partnering to address social ills. Check them out at arslonga.media. That's A-R-S-L-O-N-G-A dot media. The Nurse Keith Show is also a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, one of the largest and fast and growing collections of authoritative, high-quality podcasts, taking on the tough topics in health and care with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. At the Health Podcast Network, you can find, of course, The Nurse Keith Show, Sanjay Gupta's Coronavirus Fact versus Fiction from CNN, The New England Journal of Medicine, Amplify Nursing from UPenn Nursing, and many others. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappy Spiesen is our stalwart social media ringmaster. Stay safe, stay informed, and be the nurse who does the right thing in the face of COVID-19. This is Nurse Keith bidding you adios till next time from beautiful and quite warm Santa Fe, New Mexico. Mexico.